Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a twisted tea. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a hard cider, and on today's episode, we're exploring the Oklahoma City bombing. Around 9 a.m. on April 19, 1995, a rider rental truck containing 4,800 pounds of explosives detonated in front of the nine-story Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The nine-story building, built in 1977, was named for a federal judge and housed 14 federal agencies, including the DEA, ATF, Social Security Administration, and recruiting offices for the Army and Marine Corps. The powerful explosion blew off the building's entire north wall. As the truck exploded, it first destroyed the column next to it, designated as G-20, and shattered the entire glass facade of the building. The shockwave of the explosion forced the lower floors upwards before the fourth and fifth floors collapsed onto the third, which housed a transfer beam that ran the length of the building and was being supported by four pillars below and was supporting the pillars that held the upper floors. The added weight meant that the third floor gave way along with the transfer beam, which in turn caused the collapse of the building. The blast destroyed or damaged 325 buildings within a four-block radius and shattered glass in 258 nearby buildings. The explosion was estimated to have caused at least $652 million worth of damage and left several hundred people homeless. It was heard and felt as far away as 55 miles. At 9.03 a.m., the first of over 1,800 911 calls related to the bombing was received. An EMS command post and a triage center were quickly set up. Temporary silences were observed at the blast site so that sensitive listening devices capable of detecting human heartbeats could be used to locate survivors. In some cases, limbs had to be amputated without anesthetics, avoided most likely due to the the potential to induce shock in order to free those trapped under rubble. The scene had to be periodically evacuated as the police received tips claiming that other bombs had been planted in the building. At 10.28 a.m., rescuers found what they believed to be a second bomb. Some rescue workers refused to leave until police ordered the mandatory evacuation of a four-block area around the site. The device was determined to be a three-foot-long tow missile used in the training of federal agents and bomb-sniffing dogs, although actually inert, it had been marked live in order to mislead arms traffickers in a planned law enforcement sting. The last survivor, a 15-year-old girl found under the base of the collapsed building, was rescued at 7 p.m. that night. An estimated 646 people were inside the building when the bomb exploded. In total, 168 people were killed. This included three pregnant women and 19 children who were at the building's daycare center. Most of the deaths resulted from the collapse of the building. Those killed included 163 who were in the Murrah Federal Building, one person in the Athenian Building, one woman in a parking lot across the street, a man and a woman in the Oklahoma Water Resources Building, and a rescue worker struck on the head by debris. Of the dead, 108 worked for the federal government. Many children lost one or both of their parents in the blast, with a reported seven children losing their only remaining parent. Nearly 700 people were injured. The majority of the injuries were abrasions, severe burns, and bone fractures. At 9.45 a.m., Governor Frank Keegan declared a state of emergency and ordered all non-essential workers in the Oklahoma City area to be released from their duties for their safety. At 4 p.m., then-President Clinton declared a federal emergency in Oklahoma City and spoke to the nation saying, quote, The bombing in Oklahoma City was an attack on innocent children and defenseless citizens. It was an act of cowardice and it was evil. The United States will not tolerate it, and I will not allow the people of this country to be intimidated by evil cowards, end quote. At first, the FBI had three hypotheses about responsibility for the bombing. International terrorists, possibly the same group that had carried out the World Trade Center bombing. A drug cartel carrying out a act of revenge against DEA agents in the building's DEA office. 
and anti-government radicals attempting to start a rebellion against the federal government. Hundreds of news trucks and members of the media arrived at the site to cover the story. The press immediately noticed that the bombing took place on the second anniversary of the Waco incident. A massive hunt for the bombing suspects ensued. While investigating the vehicle identification number on an axle of the truck used in the explosion and the remnants of the license plates, federal agents were able to link the truck to a specific rider rental agency in Junction City, Kansas, using a sketch created with the assistance of the owner of the agency, the agents were able to implicate 26-year-old Timothy McVeigh in the bombing. McVeigh had been pulled over about 80 miles north of Oklahoma City by an observant Oklahoma State trooper who noticed a missing license plate on his yellow Mercury Marquise. He was subsequently arrested for unlawfully carrying a handgun just 90 minutes after the bombing. As a child growing up in rural New York, McVeigh had taken an interest in guns. By age 14, his interests include survivalism. He began stockpiling food and camping equipment in preparation for a possible nuclear attack or a communist overthrow of the United States government. Around 1986, he first read the Turner Diaries, an anti-government, neo-Nazi work of fiction written by William Pierce. The book, which details the truck bombing of the Washington, D.C. headquarters of the FBI, fueled McVeigh's paranoia about a government plot to repeal the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees the right to, quote-unquote, keep and bear arms. He enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1988 and proved to be a model soldier earning a Bronze Star for bravery in the Persian Gulf War. He was a candidate for the Special Forces, but dropped out of the program after only two days. The experience soured him on the military, and he took an early discharge and left the Army in late 1991. Federal investigators believe McVeigh's violent anti-government views evolved gradually after the Army, not a blaze of conversion. When McVeigh returned home to New York, he struggled to find steady employment. He reunited with Army friends Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier and sold guns at fairs throughout the United States. In March 1993, he drove to Waco, Texas to observe the ongoing FBI siege of the Branch Dominion compound. He viewed the U.S. government's actions there as illegal, and it was during this time that McVeigh, Nichols, and Fortier made contact with members of militia groups in the Midwest. In September 1994, McVeigh began actively plotting to destroy the Alfred M. Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Over the next six months, McVeigh and Nichols planned the bombing and acquired several tons of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, which combined with fuel oil would provide the explosive power for the bomb. McVeigh by now was railing at virtually every aspect of American government, as reflected in letters he wrote to the Lockport New York Union Sun and Journal in February and March 1992. The first letter described rising crime, quote-unquote cataclysmic taxes, politicians serving only themselves, and the disappearance of the quote-unquote American dream substituted with people struggling just to buy next week's groceries, end quote. Just as communism failed, he said democracy, quote, seems to be headed down the same road. No one is seeing the big picture. America is in decline, end quote. He closed with, quote, do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might, end quote. McVeigh's father told a friend he disapproved of the letters and told his son so. A family friend would go on to say that, quote, he, McVeigh's dad, thought that was one reason Timmy finally left. He wanted to be somewhere he could talk about what he really believed, end quote. In the summer of 1992, McVeigh made his first extended visit to the Michigan farm owned by Terry Nichols' brother, James. From early 1993 until shortly before the bombing, he moved between Kingman, Arizona, and Northeast Michigan, two centers of burgeoning interest in paramilitary anti-government organizations. 
In between working odd jobs, he hovered on the edges of the gun show circuit in Arizona and Nevada using quote-unquote Tim Tuttle as his business name. He conducted much of his gun business by mail and once advertised an anti-tank missile launcher in the far-right national newspaper The Spotlight, which has been criticized by Jewish groups as being anti-Semitic. He regularly visited gun shops, many of which had become distribution points for militia tracks. In September 1994, McVeigh began plotting to blow up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. McVeigh later said, instead of attacking a building, he had contemplated assassinating Attorney General Janet Reno, FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi, who had become infamous among extremists because of his participation in Ruby Ridge and Waco sieges and others. He initially intended to destroy only a federal building, but later decided that his message would be more powerful if many people were killed in the bombing. McVeigh's criterion for attack sites was that the target should house at least two of these three federal law enforcement agencies, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the ATF, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Drug Enforcement Administration, otherwise known as the DEA. McVeigh considered targets in Missouri, Arizona, Texas, and Arkansas. He said in his authorized biography that he wanted to minimize non-governmental casualties, so he ruled out Simmons Tower, a 40-story building in Little Rock, Arkansas, because a florist shop occupied space on the ground floor. In December 1994, McVeigh and Michael Fortier visited Oklahoma City to inspect the Murrah Federal Building. McVeigh chose the Murrah Building because he expected its glass front to shatter under the impact of the blast. He also believed that its adjacent large open parking lot across the street might absorb and dissipate some of the force and protect the occupants of nearby non-federal buildings. McVeigh and Nichols purchased or stole the materials they needed to manufacture the bomb and stored them in rented sheds. McVeigh and Nichols robbed Roger Moore in his home of $60,000 worth of guns, gold, silver, and jewels, transporting the property in the victim's van. McVeigh wrote Moore a letter in which he claimed the government agencies had committed the robbery. Items stolen from Moore were later found in Nichols' home and in a storage shed he had rented. McVeigh and his accomplices then attempted to purchase 55 U.S. gallon drums of nitromethane at various NHRA drag racing series events during the season. Later speaking about the military mindset with which he went about the preparations, he said, quote, you learn how to handle killing in the military. I face the consequences, but you learn to accept it, end quote. In mid-April 1995, McVeigh paid for a motel room at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas, and rented a rider truck. Three days later, he and Nichols drove to Oklahoma City, where he parked a getaway car several blocks from the federal building. After removing the car's license plate, he left a note covering the vehicle identification number plate that read, quote, not abandoned, please do not tow will move by April 23rd, needs battery and cable, end quote. Both men then returned to Kansas. From April 17th to the 18th, Nichols and McVeigh built the bomb in the rental truck. McVeigh added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay, which he could ignite, killing himself in the process at close range with his Glock 21 pistol in case the primary fuses failed. After finishing the truck bomb, Nichols returned home and McVeigh traveled with the truck to Junction City. McVeigh's original plan had been to detonate the bomb at 11 a.m., but at dawn on April 19, 1995, he decided instead to destroy the building at 9 a.m. As he drove towards the Murray Federal Building in the rider truck, McVeigh carried with him an envelope containing pages from the Turner Diaries. Minutes before 9 a.m., he began lighting various fuses. He parked the rider truck in a drop-off zone situated under the building's daycare center, exited, and locked the truck. As he headed to his getaway vehicle, he dropped the keys to the truck a few blocks away. On April 21st, authorities charged Timothy McVeigh, and that same day, his accomplice, Terry Nichols, turned himself in. Following a search of Nichols' home, law enforcement discovered ammonium nitrate and blasting caps 
books on bond making and a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City on which the Murray building and the spot where McVeigh's getaway car was hidden was marked. Michael Fourier agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for his wife, Lori. Federal Judge Richard Paul Match ordered that the venue for the trial be moved from Oklahoma City to Denver, Colorado, ruling that the defendants would be unable to receive a fair trial in Oklahoma. McVeigh's trial began in April 1997. The prosecution called 137 witnesses, including the Fourier's and McVeigh's sister, Jennifer McVeigh, all of whom testified to confirm McVeigh's hatred of the government and his desire to take militant action against it. According to law professor Douglas O. Linder, McVeigh wanted his lawyers to present a quote-unquote necessity defense, which would argue that he was in quote-unquote imminent danger from the government. His defense team presented pages from a Justice Department report criticizing the FBI crime lab and other experts bias investigating. Numerous damaging leaks, which appear to originate from conversations between McVeigh and his defense attorneys, emerged. They included a confession said to have been inadvertently included on a computer disk that was given to the press, which McVeigh believes seriously compromised his chances of getting a fair trial. A gag order was imposed during the trial prohibiting attorneys on either side from commenting to the press on the evidence, proceedings, or opinions regarding the trial proceedings. On June 2, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. He was sentenced to death. After years of growing outrage, McVeigh told his biographers that he began meticulously planning the bombing of a federal facility, deciding on the Murrah building because its location would provide excellent camera angles for media coverage of the event. He alone was responsible for the bombing, McVeigh asserted to the authors, adding that he wanted to get caught to give a platform for his anti-government message. For McVeigh, the act was not a crime but a soldier's mission. He told his biographers, Lou Michelle and Dan Herbeck, that he did not know there was a daycare center in the building and essentially called the deaths of the 19 children a quote-unquote PR nightmare that overshadowed his anti-government message. Yet he viewed the deaths of the civilians and children as quote-unquote collateral damage. In May 2001, the Justice Department announced that the FBI had mistakenly failed to provide over 3,000 documents to McVeigh's defense counsel. The Justice Department also announced that the execution would be postponed for one month for the defense to review the documents. On June 6, federal judge Richard Paul Match ruled the documents would not prove McVeigh innocent and ordered the execution to proceed. He was executed by lethal injection in June 2001. McVeigh's execution was the first federal execution in 38 years. Bill McVeigh, Timothy's dad, told CNN that his son's execution would be hard on the family and that he will never understand why his son committed such a horrible crime. Terry Nichols went on to trial three months after McVeigh. The government alleged that Nichols, using an alias, purchased 40 50-pound bags of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, the main ingredient in the bomb, from a farm co-op in Kansas. The prosecution was then able to link Nichols to several key stages in the plot, and fingerprint evidence found on a receipt in Nichols' wallet confirmed that Nichols and McVeigh were together on April 13, 1995. Nichols' wife, Marif, could not testify to his whereabouts on April 18th. His former wife, Lana Padilla, testified that Nichols had left a package with her to be opened in the event of his death while he was away in the Philippines. In this package, she found a letter written to McVeigh in which Nichols urged McVeigh to quote-unquote go for it. Nichols was found guilty of conspiring to build a weapon of mass destruction and of eight counts of involuntary manslaughter of federal officers. He was sentenced to life without parole in 1998. In 2000, the state of Oklahoma sought a death penalty conviction on 161 counts of first-degree murder. In May 2004, the jury found Nichols guilty on all charges, but deadlocked on the issue of sentencing him to death. Presiding Judge Stephen W. Taylor then determined the sentence of 161 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. In March 2005, FBI investigators acting on a tip searched a buried crawl space in Nichols' former house and found additional explosives missed in the preliminary search after Nichols was arrested. 
Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack. In early 2006, Fortier was released from prison, transferring into the Witness Protection Program and given a new identity. No John Doe number 2 was ever identified. Nothing conclusive was ever reported regarding the owner of the unmatched leg that was found in the bombing debris, and the government never openly investigated anyone else in conjunction with the bombing. OK-BOMB was the largest criminal case in American history, with FBI agents conducting 28,000 interviews, amassing 3.5 short tons of evidence, and collecting nearly 1 billion pieces of information. Following the Oklahoma City attack, media and law enforcement officials began intense investigations of the militia movement and other armed extremist groups. The bombing remained the deadliest terrorist assault on U.S. soil until the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City and the Pentagon outside Washington, D.C. in 2001. In the wake of the bombing, the U.S. government enacted several pieces of legislation, including the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. In response to the trials of the conspirators being moved out of state, the Victim Allocution Clarification Act of 1997 was signed on March 20, 1997 by then-President Clinton to allow the victims of the bombings and the victims of any future acts of violence the right to observe trials and to offer impact testimony in sentencing hearings. In response to the passing of the legislation, Clinton said that, quote, when someone is a victim, he or she should be at the center of the criminal justice process, not on the outside looking in, end quote. In the weeks following the bombing, the federal government ordered that all federal buildings in all major cities be surrounded by prefabricated Jersey boundaries to prevent similar attacks. All new federal buildings must now be constructed with truck-resistant barriers and with deep setbacks from surrounding streets to minimize their own ability to truck bombs. No major federal financial assistance was made available to the survivors of the Oklahoma City bombing, but the Murray Fund set up in the wake of the bombing attracted over $300,000 in federal grants. Over $40 million was donated to the city to aid disaster relief and to compensate the victims. Funds were initially distributed to families who needed it to get back on their feet, and the rest was held in trust for longer-term medical and psychological needs. By 2005, $18 million of the donations remained, some of which was earmarked to provide a college education for each of the 219 children who lost one or both parents in the bombing. On April 6, 2010, House Bill 2750 was signed by Governor Brad Henry, requiring the bombing to be entered into the school curriculum for Oklahoma, U.S., and world history classes. The Oklahoma City National Memorial was dedicated by then-President Clinton on April 19, 2000, exactly five years after the bombing. Within the first year, it had 700,000 visitors. On the south end of the memorial is a field of symbolic bronze and stone chairs, one for each person lost, arranged according to which floor of the building they were on. The chairs represent the empty chairs at the dinner table of the victims' families. The seats of the children killed are smaller than those of the adults lost. On the opposite side is the quote-unquote survivor tree, part of the building's original landscaping that survived the blast and fires that followed it. The memorial left part of the foundation of the building intact, allowing visitors to see the scale of the destruction. An observance is held each year to remember the victims of the bombing. So, honestly, this was one of the first kind of national tragedies that I became familiar with and was definitely something that was often cited after 9-11. I think one thing that always comes to mind for me was the ease at which they were able to get the materials needed. I mean, I know they use the alias, but that seems to be more for evading culpability purposes and just a simple fact 
of there were so many red flags that came up for McVeigh, and he was essentially telling people what he was planning to do. And I mean, this just came up in a previous case that we talked about, but being able to do something when you see those red flags and really stepping in. I think that honestly, the third co-conspirator, and I know this is a typical thing when it comes to just people getting off, but the fact that he got such a short sentence is ridiculous for me. I think they had enough evidence where they could have convicted all of them and given them uh, harsh sentences, including Michael. I don't see why he would get anything less, and I don't see why they gave his wife immunity. I think that this case definitely has a lot of branches to other cases that we typically talk about when it comes to sort of like the militia and anti-American thoughts. You know, you have Waco, Ruby Ridge, the Branch Davinians, and all that that goes into it. And honestly, he likely inspired other people and definitely other militias to be stronger in their anti-Americanism. Is definitely evident. This tends to come up a lot when it comes to the families of the perpetrators. And definitely in this case, I feel so bad for his dad and the fact that his dad was really trying to like call out and address the behavior beforehand. Like he was the one person that says like, hey, like stop, like that's not good. You should really reevaluate how you're thinking of this. And instead of really understanding that and changing and thinking more clearly, he just wound up moving away and actually becoming more insulated in all the militias and how they view the world. We spoke briefly about the Turner Diaries and the fact that he was inspired by them. Essentially, he really copied what was in that book. And I think it's interesting how negative ideologies tend to lead to more negative ideologies. So you have the neo-Nazism, you have the anti-government sentiment, and that leads into terrorism. And it leads into you thinking that it is okay simply because you had a negative experience in the military and you have a negative view of the framework of democracy, the framework of the country, that it is somehow your right, your justification to kill a bunch of people that have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the supposed policies that you're railing against. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I do appreciate the very thorough investigation that the FBI did. I think to their credit, this is definitely one case that exemplifies why they're seen as the gold standard in police investigation. They could have easily taken a very shortcut path and not collected too much evidence. It was some very obvious evidence that they had, but the fact that they really drilled in and tried to make sure that they understood not only what happened, but why it happened and things that they could do to prevent it in the future, I think it's definitely a, a testament to the remarkable work that they did in this case. What are your thoughts on it? It's so horrific and sickening. I don't even know where to begin. I don't think I fully understood the scope of the bombing before going into this. I knew that about the daycare center, but knowing how many people were not just killed, but also injured and how far reaching the blast was and how many people within like a few blocks were affected by it. That I think is really shocking. I just, McVeigh just makes me so mad. The fact that he says he wanted to get caught for this and then he did get caught for this and I mean, truly had no remorse for anything that he did is just despicable. I know that he said he didn't know that the daycare center was there. I don't know how much I believe that, frankly, because he didn't pick a place with a flower shop. And he did, by all, well, from what I've seen, he did scope out this building. I guess he just didn't know that there was a daycare center there. I don't know. That seems a little fishy to me. I think he was by no means excusing this deeply affected by his time in the military. I mean, I think he was 
he was radicalized after and i think there was some leanings beforehand for sure with like what you said all the turner diaries which has gone on to inspire like many other crimes and acts of terrorism not just the oklahoma city bombing but I think he was very deeply affected by his time in the military, obviously seeing, you know, civilian loss as just collateral damage to his ideology and his actions, I think is a very military mindset. And it's not right. There should be no loss. I'm not saying him railing against the government and killing those people because he killing federal agents, federal workers was right either. There, This should have never happened. And like you said, Del. I don't know if there were necessarily warning signs, but he was pretty open about what he was doing and he had a group of people behind him. It's crazy to see. We're going to get a little bit more into militias, but we'll get more into militias in a minute. But I remember like the first time I was like really learning about militias outside of like the friggin' Revolutionary War was in Bowling for Columbine, which we mentioned a few episodes ago. And I, I didn't really know like the 90s was such a like hotbed of this far right extremism and the militia movement. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, like we've said, he made it so obvious. And I don't know, I would hope that nowadays, I mean, this seems like something that could happen today, honestly, which is really frightening for me personally. I would hope that maybe he would be more on the radar of the government. I mean, to, I think, people less intimate in his life, he wasn't talking to things about that. It seems like maybe he did have a select group of people, but he was talking about things like on the fringe, you know, that obviously led to this happening. I find it kind of interesting that the judge wanted this trial moved and there was like a lot of talk about getting a fair trial because there is so much evidence. I mean, the court of public opinion, everyone deserves a fair trial, but there is so much evidence to show that he did it. Where would he really have gotten an unbiased trial? I feel like that was kind of pointless to move it somewhere else. And I mean, it is his right to have his defense team get all of these documents. I mean, 3,000 documents not released is kind of crazy, if you ask me. But I don't think it would have, I mean, it it would not, there's no way it would have helped his defense in any way. And then I think for him to try to say it was a necessity defense because he was in imminent danger is such bullshit. That's like another thing that just infuriates me about this case and people like him. I'll save some of my thoughts uh, when we get into the following topics, but it's just the audacity, like as silly as it sounds, this audacity of right wing extremists, domestic terrorists, whatever you want to say, is just mind blowing to me. It's something I just don't understand. One of the things that inspired McVeigh was Ruby Ridge and the treatment of Randy Weaver's family. Randy Weaver was a former Green Beret. He and his wife, Vicki, were Christian fundamentalists who distrusted the government and thought the apocalypse was coming. They started hoarding guns, and in 1984, they moved their family into a cabin overlooking the Ruby Creek in Idaho. The cabin, by choice, had no electricity or running water. After receiving information that Weaver had threatened President Ronald Reagan and other government officials, the FBI and the Secret Service opened an investigation. No charges were filed, but investigators documented that Weaver had ties to the Aryan nation. Weaver denied the claim. In 1989, undercover ATF agents claimed Weaver sold them illegal sawed-off shotguns and offered him the chance to become an informant on the Aryan Nation. When Weaver refused, he was indicted for making and keeping illegal weapons. After being released on bail, his trial was set for February 1999, but his probation officer told him it wasn't until March 20th. Weaver missed the February trial and a warrant was issued for his arrest. The March 20th trial came and went without an appearance from Weaver and a grand jury indicted him for failing to appear at trial. Attempts to negotiate with Weaver over the next year via mail failed and he remained at large as a fugitive. 
the U.S. Marshal Service began to survey the terrain near the cabin and planned to arrest Weaver. Surveillance team noted the Weavers were almost always armed and decided to settle in for the long haul. They planned to infiltrate the Thai family unit with the help of a male and female undercover deputy posing as Weaver's newest neighbors, but the deputies never got the chance. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, as the U.S. Marshal team prepared to gather intelligence for the day, the Weaver's dogs became aware of their presence. Alarmed, they retreated to a small clearing to the west of the house. Randy, his 14-year-old son Sammy, and Sammy's friend Kevin Harris gave chase. A firefight ensued, leaving Sammy, Marshal Billy Deegan, and one of Weaver's dogs dead. Who shot first and who shot whom would later be debated by all surviving parties in the courts and in the media. The next day, the FBI, under the impression they were entering an active, unprovoked firefight against U.S. Marshals, arrived on Ruby Ridge. As hundreds of law enforcement officers and federal agents surged into the area with the unusual orders to shoot any armed adult on site, FBI snipers set up a perimeter hoping to force Weaver to negotiate. Randy ignored all negotiation attempts. He was eventually shot after heading to the shed where Sammy's body was being kept. As he returned to his cabin, Vicky, who was standing behind the front door holding their infant daughter, was shot in the face and killed. Outside of the cabin, hundreds of protesters, including neo-Nazis and other far-right groups, arrived to oppose the government's actions and grew increasingly agitated when they learned of the deaths of Sammy and Vicky. On August 30th, Special Forces soldier and Populist Party presidential candidate Bo Gritz convinced Randy to give up the critically injured Harris and allow Vicky's body to be removed from the cabin. Weaver and his surviving family, including his baby daughter, remained inside. The next morning, Gritz convinced Randy to give himself up, and Randy was immediately arrested. Despite being charged with murder, conspiracy, and other crimes, Weaver was only convicted of failing to appear for trial on his original weapons charge. Kevin Harris was also cleared of all charges. A Department of Justice task force report found many faults with how federal agents handled the Ruby Ridge situation, such as the rule change that allowed snipers to shoot any armed adult on site without warning to surrender was unconstitutional. Lon Horiuchi, an FBI sniper, was unjustified in firing the shot that killed Vicki Weaver since Weaver and Harris were in retreat when he fired. Horiuchi placed Vicki Weaver and her children at risk by targeting the cabin door without knowing who was behind it. At least one FBI agent participated in a cover-up about Ruby Ridge. He pled guilty to obstruction of justice and was sentenced to 18 months in prison and a $4,000 fine after admitting to destroying a report that condemned the FBI's response during the standoff. In 1997, Horiuchi was charged with manslaughter for killing Vicki Weaver. A judge dismissed the case, however, claiming federal agents could not be charged for actions taken in the line of duty. In 2001, the ruling was overturned, but no further criminal charges were filed against Horiuchi. In 1995, Randy Weaver and his three daughters were awarded $3.1 million for the deaths of Sammy and Vicky. In 2000, Harris was awarded $380,000 by the government in return for his dropping a $10 million lawsuit against them. The government never admitted any wrongdoing in his case. Along with the botched Waco siege the next year, Ruby Ridge badly damaged the credibility of the Clinton-era FBI and boosted some emerging narratives on the far right, that the feds were coming for the guns and property of those, like Weaver who wanted no further contact with a country they saw as irredeemably corrupt. Bill Moreland, who reported on Ruby Ridge for a Spokane, Washington newspaper, said, quote, Ruby Ridge became a demarcation point for the rise of the modern militia movement, end quote. He continued by saying, quote, it put the fertilizer in their minds, which spreaded radical anti-government beliefs, end quote. A co-worker later said that McVeigh also traveled to Ruby Ridge to perform his own inspection after the Weaver shootings and returned certain that federal agents intentionally killed Weaver's son and wife. Randy's daughter, Sarah, said she is devastated each time someone commits a violent act in the name of Ruby Ridge. She told the Associated Press in 2012, quote, it killed me inside. I knew what it was like to lose a family member in violence. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, end quote. Any thoughts on Ruby Ridge, Dell? 
So Ruby Ridge is one of those cases where I understand the intent that the FBI had and the other federal agents, but the way they went about it was not the best. But also on the other side, I don't think that Randy Weaver was some innocent person who was just being persecuted by the federal government. At the end of the day, he was a neo-Nazi or at least had ties to neo-Nazi groups. He had made threats against president, President Ronald Reagan, which you can't do. Everyone knows that. So the fact that there might have been a mix-up Fine, whatever. Once the federal officers came to your house, your response is to comply with their orders. It's not to get your guns. It's not to engage in a firefight with them. Comply. I think that had he complied, had he had the other people at the cabin comply, that a lot of this would not have happened at all. I do understand that the FBI made mistakes. I'm not discounting that. I'm not discounting the fact that you shouldn't just shoot through a door and not know who was behind it. But in these cases, it's really hard to know what to do and to know who was a threat and who was not a threat. And I think this exemplifies that in all of its facets. I am very surprised that he didn't end up going to jail for something more severe. I definitely think he should have, at least for the threats that he made against President Reagan at the minimum. We likely will never know fully what happened at Ruby Ridge, but my money is definitely on that the anti-government uh, neo-Nazi militia members, again, were not in the right. What about you? I totally agree with everything you just said. I do think the government went a little too far and they mishandled this situation. But at the end of the day, Weaver was doing something illegal. They had good reason to go in there and try to get a fugitive out of a situation. He wasn't being targeted for no reason, which I think a lot of his supporters it willfully ignore. Yes, you can have guns, but there are certain things with weapons you can't do. Again, I don't really want to get into gun culture. It's not something I can relate to. None of what we talked about with Ruby Ridge is something I can understand or relate to. I think the fact that people just showed up, you can, there's footage of people showing up and protesting with signs that say like the Fed shot first. How would they know that from coming in from the outside before anything was like anything was fully investigated? I understand people being distrustful of the government and angry with the government and for many different things. Obviously, people, this people in militia groups, people that we're going to talk about that are domestic terrorists, go about things completely in wrong, violent unnecessary ways. And I feel like, I don't know, I, like I said, I understand being upset with the government for many different things. But in cases like this, where it's, you're going to take my guns and my land, I feel like there's just so much toxic masculinity in that and so much like white male entitlement in that too. And that's something we could do a whole series on stuff like that with all of a million and one different cases of stuff like that. But it's shocking. It's just crazy to me to see. And I know that this is a stupid argument, but if you're, frankly, in my opinion, if you're that upset with the U.S. government, then leave. Go somewhere else. Someone else will take you. We don't want you here. I don't know. And then for, you know, for people like that to see themselves as patriots, too, I just don't understand. People call Timothy McVeigh a patriot. There's absolutely nothing patriotic about what he did. There's nothing patriotic about what Randy Weaver did or stood for either. I wanted to say real quick too, I feel like the U.S. Marshal's plan was not good to begin with, with getting them to talk to neighbors. These people were incredibly guarded and distrusting. I don't understand how new neighbors neighbors where they were living in like the middle of nowhere. Why would that work? And then I don't know, I think the 
what happened with Horiuchi, him being charged with manslaughter, and then the judge saying you can't be charged for that when you're in the line of duty. I don't agree with that. I don't know. I feel like that's just giving too much forgiveness. I'm not saying that he like intentionally shot Vicky Weaver. I do think he put the family in danger by shooting, but I think he needed to be reprimanded somehow for poor decision-making that put people in danger. And if other people in his role are doing that, they need to be reprimanded somehow too. If it's during the line of duty, I just thought that was interesting. And I feel like stuff like that only like fuels the fire of people that don't trust the government. I agree. Police immunity, federal agent immunity is definitely one of those things that it feels wrong because it feels like a form of legalized murder. I understand why it's there because in crisis situation and split decision making situations, you want to make sure that you don't have officers and agents having this fear in the back of their head that if they make the wrong move, they're going to be prosecuted. And while I don't think that it should have been handled in the criminal justice sense, I do think there should have been some sort of intra-agency, some sort of administrative punishment for that. Just so there's recognition that the decision was wrong and hopefully for future agents is used as training thing where like, hey, these are two scenarios. This is what you're supposed to do. This is an example of what you're not supposed to do. The Oklahoma City bombing is the worst act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history and McVeigh is considered a right-wing extremist. Domestic terrorism is defined as a violent criminal act committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influence, such as those of a political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. In the U.S., acts of domestic terrorism are those in which involve acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. While the Patriot Act defines domestic terrorism for the purposes of authorizing law enforcement investigations, no federal criminal offense exists which refers to domestic terrorism, while international terrorism, acts of terrorism transcending national borders, is a defined crime in federal law. Acts of domestic terrorism are charged under specific laws, such as killing federal agents or, quote, attempting to use explosive to destroy a building in interstate commerce, end quote. The Department of Homeland Security reported in October 2020 that white supremacists holds the top domestic terrorism threat, which FBI Director Christopher Way confirmed in March 2021, noting the Bureau had elevated the threat to the same level of ISIS. The DHS report did not mention Antifa despite persistent allegations about its threat from the political right in recent years. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement, quote, lawmakers, law enforcement, and the public need to recognize the grave and dangerous threat posed by violent white supremacy. We cannot begin to defeat this deadly form of hatred if we fail to even recognize it, end quote. McVeigh held white supremacist views. Right-wing terrorism or far-right terrorism is motivated by a variety of different right-wing and far-right ideologies, most prominently by neo-Nazism, neo-fascism, white nationalism, white separatism, ethno-nationalism, religious nationalism, and anti-government patriot-slash-sovereign citizen beliefs. From 2017 to 2020, the FBI has arrested a few hundred Americans suspected of ties to domestic terrorism or violent white supremacy. And as the nation confronts a surge in 
racially motivated violence, the FBI uncovered references to McVeigh in several of those investigations, according to an ABC News review of court records and government documents. According to Elizabeth Newman, former head of threat prevention and security policy at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, said the 1990s was, quote unquote, kind of the last time that the nation focused on right-wing extremism because the 9-11 attacks just a few months later diverted attention overseas. She continued by saying, quote, for many of us, a huge wake-up moment, end quote, came in August 2017 when a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, attracted white supremacists from across the country who chanted racist slogans and clashed with counter-protesters, leaving one woman dead. Kelvin Pierce, whose late father, Dr. William Luther Pierce, wrote the Turner Diaries and is considered one of the pioneers of the modern white power movement, believes the Charlottesville rally showed that white supremacy was, quote unquote, becoming mainstream again, and that the, quote, monster has come out of hibernation, end quote. ABC News found that when Trump emerged as a presidential candidate in 2015, at least 25 people charged with hate-fueled assaults or threats cited Trump specifically in connection to their actions. ABC News could not find any such cases similarly tied to former presidents Barack Obama or George W. Bush. Kathleen Ballou, a University of Chicago historian who has studied the development of modern white supremacy, said, quote, a mass casualty event like the Oklahoma City bombing is meant to provoke further violence. And she continued by saying, quote, it's meant to incite people to awaken them to what people in this movement see as a state of emergency confronting the white race, end quote. John Cohen, an ABC News contributor who served as the Department of Homeland Security counterterrorism coordinator under the Obama administration, warned, quote, that data point in conjunction with more public displays of far-right extremist beliefs and a rise in hate crimes suggests we are seeing a dramatic reemergence of the same views that served as the motivation for the Oklahoma City attack. McVeigh was also deeply involved in survivalism and militia groups, as we mentioned. McVeigh had followed the survivalist movement since his, he was a teen, which shifted after the fall of communism from warning of Soviet-inspired disasters to inveighing against the federal government and gun control. The militia movement sprang to life as Bill Clinton campaigned for president on a platform of gun control, which militia leaders called a prelude to tyranny. Although McVeigh and Nichols were never directly connected with any major political group, they held views characteristic of the broad patriot movement, which fear authoritarian plots by the U.S. federal government and corporate elites. At its most extreme, the patriot movement denied the legitimacy of the federal government and law enforcement. Journalist Bill Merlin said the militia groups, large and small, used the story of Ruby Ridge to recruit people and to amplify existing anti-government beliefs and quote-unquote play on people's fears. The rise of the movement was timed with the broader uptick of internet technologies. Morlin said that militia groups made intense use of these technologies to spread their messages and work around mainstream outlets. While many believe the movement dropped off sharply after McVeigh's act, its real numbers are difficult to assess and thus many simply turned their attention to other activities such as acting as vigilante immigration enforcers on the southern border. In the Trump era, these groups are far more emboldened and often organized openly on social media. They are also able to bring weapons into public places in a way that was not previously possible. Changing gun laws, such as proliferating open carry provisions, the end of the assault's weapons ban, and the Supreme Court's Heller decision means that groups can bring semi-automatic weapons, sidearms, and body armor into cities unchallenged. In June 2021, the White House released their strategy on countering domestic terrorism. Its pillars include preventing domestic terrorism recruitment and mobilization to violence, disrupting and deterring domestic terrorism activity, and confronting long-term contributors to domestic terrorists. Del, what are your thoughts on this breakdown of domestic terrorism and far-right extremism? I think that 
everything in this section that we talked about has been a longstanding plague on the United States and something that I don't see really changing all that much. I think that, like we said, when it comes to the internet and other means of communication that is, you know, like the dark web and social media platforms that don't have a uh, terms and conditions or other things that would restrict individuals from coordinating with each other, you're going to see this. Individuals that have shitty ass beliefs have found ways to get together and talk and coordinate, again, their shitty ass philosophies that do nothing to actually help people. I understand that they believe that the government is after them and that there's been a decrease in what the government means, but I really don't care. I'll be honest with you. I don't care. I think that we should do everything we can to root out these people, publicly shame them, and make them see that... Any version of this is unacceptable in modern society. You can't be a right-wing extremist. You can't be a far-right extremist. You can't be a neo-Nazi without having a major public backlash. And I think one of the biggest differences between now and even 10 years ago is the fact that that is absent, that people are able to call themselves neo-Nazis, call themselves white supremacists. And honestly, they probably don't get punched in the face enough for it. Probably not the most polite thing. And I generally don't like violence, but I'm totally fine with punching Nazis. What about you? I totally agree. Once again, with everything you've just said, I understand being upset with the government for various different things, maybe not feeling represented by the government, but There is no reason or excuse to turn to violence to get your message across. This is a serious threat to the country. And I feel like people have not really widely talked about that. But I think we see it constantly on the news. And we I don't think it takes much to, you know, put two and two together that this is a serious threat. And like you said, Del, this has always been around in various forms. I thought it was interesting to hear about how maybe these militia groups like died off a little or people just weren't, the government wasn't focusing on them because of 9-11, but they have not just militias, but like hate groups and people with this similar ideology, they know how to find each other, they know how to get together, they know how to organize. And it's always changed, whether it was social media or whether it was something else. And I really do think social media has made this a million times worse. I mean, I think it's like widely understood that it's kind of like hidden in plain sight. I mean, there are certain websites you can easily go on to find this hate-fueled discussion. It's not very hard to find. I don't know how I feel like what I think is going to happen in the future either. I think one of the most important things, like I said, is talking about it and getting people to realize this is a threat. I like to see these pillars come into place, but like, what does this actually look like putting it into place? Like you said, I'm all for public shaming with stuff like this too, because there's no excuse. And like you said, there's not as much shock and disgust when people talk about these horrific, more right-wing views. People are truly emboldened to say all of this stuff. And not even just like these extremists. I feel like in so many conversations now, people do just want to throw out all of their crazy political ideas. And To me, it's still very shocking that people think they can just say whatever they feel to any type of audience. Where, like you said, gone are the days where people were maybe more guarded with their quote-unquote unpopular opinions, racist views, Nazi views, extremist views. And I don't really know what can be done to deter people from thinking that way. I think education is a big thing, which... I feel like there's kind of an attack on education and our inhonest education in the United States, particularly in the state of Florida. And 
I don't know. It's because it's such a, it's so much fear mongering that I don't know what can really end it. It's like a generation's thing. And I don't think it will ever fully go away, which is so depressing to think about. But I don't know. This is just like an ideological like moral issue, really, people are never going to be able to agree and move past certain things. And, you know, you hope that this stuff like dies off. But like we've said a million times, people feel comfortable spewing this hatred right now. In the United States, I feel like in many countries around the world, as well. And it's just, I don't know, it's so mind blowing to know that this is the time we're living in. Yeah. And one thing that I wanted to add, like when you said, you know, controversial opinions, it sparked this thought that in modern times, it seems like people view that as a badge of honor. Like, oh, look at my controversial opinions. Oh, look at me sharing what shouldn't be said. That's for you as something to be proud of. Whereas like, no, the reason why your opinions are controversial, the reason why your opinions shouldn't be said in any type of society, especially a polite functioning society, is because they're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Anytime you have an ideology based on hating other people, on denigrating other people, on trying to make yourself seem better because of something that you can't control and making people feel less over something they can't control makes you an idiot. It makes you a fool that has shitty ass opinions, shitty ass views that we should absolutely do everything we can in our power to demonize and to make sure that it is something that we don't pass on the future generations at all. I think that's a good place to end it. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Oklahoma City bombings. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. As always, stay safe.